This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. Of course, I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. So we just got finished with Voices of Rural Colorado. And this year was a completely different, well, I'm just going to say it, it was a bit of a game changer for everybody that attended and for us and how we do things. And of course, we take things for granted before the pandemic that we really don't take for granted anymore. So we were really happy for everybody to come back together and to do the thing that we do, and that's make a strong voice for our rural communities. We had uh, a number of panelists, we had a number of presenters, and these are all heavy hitters. We had um, water. We had, uh, ag. I did an ag one with, uh, Kate Greenberg and, um, Frank or, uh, Terry Frankhauser and, uh, uh, Nick Coles, uh, Colgazer and, uh, Austin Vincent, all leaders in the ag community. Um, we had a great, uh, very, um, very interesting water panel. It was it was pretty uh, intense on that. Um, and of course, we called, talked about mental health. We had just all of the different things um, that really face uh, rural Colorado. So what we wanted to do this year that we haven't done in years past is really share those panelists, the sponsors, those people who support the rural communities uh, across the state all the time. And so our episode... Uh, and the next two episodes um, are highlight really who those people are. And so we wanted to share that with you. And I didn't go because I had COVID for the <laughs> second time. So, so it was the, like the day, a couple days before, of course, um, you know, my wife tests positive, then I test positive, then we go get the big tests and <sighs> the kids test positive. So we were kind of knocked out the whole time. So I unfortunately did not get to go this year. And, um, which is a shame, but with that, we did, we did, um, decide to bring some of the people that helped put this on, on our show. So up there, it was Mike interviewing them. And then I interviewed one person, uh, because she also had COVID. So she was stuck at home as well. So we, we kind of circled back and did that, but, um, we're going to hear a little bit about some of the people that 
basically supported us and that's action 22 pro 15 and club 20 that really help us do this sort of thing to reach our audience and our membership. And we're going to hear a little bit from them. Um, and before we, we get to all of these great sponsors and everybody who supported us, I have to give a big shout out to our colleagues uh, from Club 20 with Christian Reese and Pro 15, um, Kathy Scholl. They work tremendously hard. For the last several years, Christian really has taken this on, um, and it's been her project, and, we, and Kathy and I have just been there to support her. And it's every year. It's a huge success, and we bring so many people together, and it's really impactful. And I think this year was maybe the most impactful, the loudest voice, um, the strongest results that we've ever seen. And so I really want to say thank you to Kathy Shaw for all of her hard work, and especially to Christian Reese and her staff with Club 20 for the tremendous work and everything that they do to take care of their communities. And before we get to our sponsors and the word from them, um, so there was a little bit of controversy <laughs> at, at the meeting this year. Uh, again, I wasn't there. So what happened? So there was, I, I have to tell you, I was at dinner um, with our, our new vice chair, Tony Haas, Commissioner Tony Haas, who is a uh, county commissioner for Los Animas County, but he's also a beef producer. And he's just one of those rare, still real deal cowboys. Um, and, you know, he's a bull rider and everything. So we're sitting at dinner with him and, and Micah and a few other, um, Richard Holtorf and a few other um, of our colleagues, and he gets this text. Um, and it was shocking. And it was a text by, and I'm not going to name any names because it's been resolved, but yeah. um, it was by somebody who was on a decision-making commission and a decision-making commission um, for the ag community. Um, and this person had been appointed a couple of years ago. Um, and from the very moment of their appointment, the negative feelings toward our ag community were apparent, but it really hit a boiling point, of course, while we were up there for voices. Um, And so (laughs) the governor um, came on. um, So, and let me just tell you, the governor has always very supportive of Voices of Rural Colorado, of the organizations. Action 22 has been really generous. Um, Phil Weiser was there. Like there was, it was a, it was a, stellar lineup. Um, but that email or the post has, was starting to get emailed around, texted around right before the governor came on at 11 o'clock on Friday. Yes. And to be fair to um, Governor Polis has come to almost all of our events and he gets in front of people and he takes questions. Even when we said like, well, just speak for five minutes. You don't, you have, don't to. have to. Because a lot of times when he comes in, in front of our memberships, it's not necessarily the, the nicest crowd towards right. him. But, you know, credit where credit's due. He stands up there and he talks to everyone and he hears their concerns. Thus, going into this, I guess he gets up to speak. He gets up to speak and he's a, it's on Zoom. Um, and the question comes up and, and the, it was acknowledged, all the great things he actually has done for ag, especially in the last year. And then we all had a laugh together about even the meet out turned out to be a really great event. And, and so we were all laughing about it. And he's got a great sense of humor about it. And then the question came up. Now, I know that he did not know what post that they were referring yes. to um, because he had no idea. And he said, you know, he doesn't, 
he doesn't want to um, censure or to, you know, he puts a lot of different people on these commissions. And that's true. Mm-hmm. There's over, over 3,000 people on different decision-making commissions in Colorado. And he works really hard to make sure it hasn't always happened in the past, but under his administration, he has put a lot of, and there's action 22 members and even board members who are on, on different commissions. But this crowd, our, our group were this, this was not okay. This text or this post absolutely was not okay. And so um, I sent the, message up. I sent the post so that he would actually know what was being talked about. Um, but it was, you know, it was too late. And so he left that and there was, there was a bit of a hullabaloo with that. There was an article that was, um, written, there was some press there. Yeah. I believe it was, uh, actually an article written specifically about voices of rural Colorado and that kind of put it out there. And then it like everything on social media, it kind of spread like wildfire. And I, and it was a couple days later, later, this, uh, person, was on this commissioner board ended up resigning over yeah, it. They resigned. So that was at eleven o'clock on Friday when the governor spoke. By two thirty on um, Monday, this person had resigned. Now this is a person who is a friend, um, honestly, of um, the governor and the first gentleman. And so this was not an easy thing. Um, they resigned with an apology to the governor um, for putting him in that position. But I think that we have to absolutely give credit where credit is due, that um, regardless of second or third or fourth hand, when it comes to it, the governor really does want to do what's best for rural Colorado. And this was a great example of this got brought to him um, and then that person resigned. And so we wanted to say we wanted to say thanks. And that was the kind of power, powerful impact that this um, that voices had, but it was also a really great way um, for everybody to see how engaged um, our executive, um, our executive branch, really is with um, our rural communities. Yeah, two lessons here. Uh, voices is important because it does bring some of us down here on the the rural area together with the policymakers, or legislators, and, and the Denver crowd, where you know everything's centered when it comes to legislation. Second lesson is that if you're in a public position, be careful what you put on social media because everybody can see it. Oh my gosh. And I don't get it. It just keeps happening. Uh, You know, if you're in the public eye, people are going to be watching this because no matter what side of the aisle you're on or how right you think you are, there's somebody that disagrees with you and they're just looking for this opportunity to grab something. And and that's what happened. And, uh, you know, I wasn't familiar with this individual uh, policy-wise, anything like that, but we saw what happened when social media post, meeting, resigned. It was resigned. And and that was somebody that had been really causing problems for a couple of years. Um, but also, <laughs> I, I can't imagine, um, this would be like me putting up a social media post that was just spewing a lot of anger and yeah. distaste. And if I put that on your post and it was somebody, then that forces you to take a position. I mean, that's just a mean thing to do. It was just yeah. all around. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was at all fair to the governor or to the first gentleman yeah. um, at all. So um, with that, but there was all around, it was really great. And when you listen to these interviews that we did with our sponsors, you'll understand why this was so 
uh, amazing and productive. And really the people, the, the stakeholders, the people who are engaged throughout the state are outstanding um, and really do care about our state. So with that, we're going to go to the interviews and hear a little bit from our sponsors. And remember, email us at show at action22.org. Uh, you can find us on YouTube as well, Making Action Happen. We ask that you click on that, subscribe, like, do all the stuff that the kids say when they're making their videos. Um, and also you can find us on any major podcast platform, first included Voice American Network. Just go there, Making Action Happen. You can download it there or Spotify or Apple, wherever you want to go. And if you're not already a member of Action 22, you're going to see why it's such a huge benefit to you to become a member now because you get to be to participate in things like Voices of Rural Colorado. All right. We'll see you next week. We are good to go. So, Josh Neff, we're here with you. You're from Centura Health. I am. So what's your role with Centura? So I'm the System Vice President of Integration and Rural Health. So I see I oversee all of our rural health initiatives across uh, Colorado and western Kansas. Oh, wow. It stretches all the way to Kansas. <clears throat> wow. And how long have you been with that organization? I've been with Centura about four years. I've been in healthcare my entire career, mostly faith-based nonprofit organizations like Centura. Okay. Okay. And so tell us a little bit more about what Centura is working on, what, they're, what they are doing to help address issues in rural Colorado. Yeah, so um, Centura is the largest healthcare provider in Colorado and Western Kansas. Okay. Um, we've got 17 hospitals. We've got 22,000 associates. So just a few. Um, just a few, <laughs> yeah. And that includes, uh, we've got our Flight for Life program and then uh, a number of ambulatory programs across the state as well. So huge footprint, huge presence. Yeah. Um, most people know us from our presence along the front range and, and predominantly St. Anthony's Hospital in Denver and then Penrose St. Francis in Colorado Springs. That said, we've got 15 other hospitals, um, wow. and we're a 140-year-old ministry that started in Durango, Colorado. Really? I didn't realize it started in Durango. Yeah, cool. so Mercy Regional Medical Center was our first hospital 140 years ago. Wow. Um, we had uh, five women religious um, from the Catholic ministry. Okay. If you can imagine, we're asked to ride mules across the state <laughs> of Colorado uh-huh. um, and build a hospital and start to deliver health care to a group of pretty rowdy minors. Yeah. Um, those women religious had no construction experience, no healthcare experience. Okay, um, but they took that task really seriously, and so our roots at Centura really are in, in rural healthcare. And if you look at where our footprint is in terms of um, not only the hospitals that Centura owns and operates through our two sponsors, mm-hmm. um, so we are we are sponsored by the Adventist faith and the Catholic faith. Okay, but we also have sixteen affiliated rural critical access hospitals. Okay, and so if you look at that footprint, the majority of the work we do is in rural Colorado and Western Kansas. Yeah. Tell me about the, how that works, the rural critical access hospitals. So part of our vision is every community, every neighborhood, every life, whole and healthy. Okay. So that doesn't just mean along the front range. And so our vision is a significant part of our overall global mission. Right. And we want to make sure that some of our most fragile communities in rural Colorado and Western Kansas have access to care. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a completely different environment. Mm-hmm. Um, access to care is challenging. Right. Those folks don't live on the front range for a reason. Um, yeah. And they don't like to come to the front range, even if it's to get health care. Right. Um, and then you couple on top of that kind of the agricultural um, type lifestyle where you, know, you may be on a tractor for 16, 18 or more hours a day during harvest or planting season. It's tough to just park the tractor, jump off drive two or three hours into Denver or Colorado Springs to see your specialist mm-hmm. and then drive back. 
So what we do is through uh, through our rural physician outreach, we're able to take specialists out into these communities so those mm-hmm. folks in those communities have greater access to care and that they don't have to leave their communities. And the other piece that we do is we help these small critical access hospitals really lean into kind of system think. Mm-hmm. Um, there are rural critical access hospitals are at risk, especially coming out of COVID. Okay. Um, typically, these organizations aren't operating with a profit margin. Right, right. Were it not for some tax dollars and some pharmacy dollars and some other things. <clears throat> and so what we try to do is allow them to stay completely independent, but start to think in terms of how systems would approach the delivery of healthcare. Right. So we talk to them about how to be more operationally efficient, how to um, invest the dollars through the foundation, how to think about improving access to care, thinking about different care models, embracing telemedicine, which is a great opportunity for us to use in the rural market, but mm-hmm. our rural partner or our rural, our rural communities aren't early adopters, which is interesting. Right. Um, the analogy that I've given to a number of folks is that we, we've got farmers driving around in a three-quarter of a million-dollar tractor that's got touchscreen guided GPS that monitors <laughs> the amount of, of nutrients per seed drilled into the ground, right. but they're still using a Nokia flip phone. Sure. And they don't want to see a nurse practitioner, they don't want to see a PA, and they don't want to see them on TV. Mm-hmm. They want to see them in person, and they want to see a physician. Yeah. So figuring out how to improve access to care through technology um, and other sources proves to be a little bit of a challenge for us out there. So we just work with them to really think about um, how to look at things through a different lens. We don't force them to do anything. We really just act as a trusted advisor and a consultant for the most part to to try to make sure we're driving long-term sustainability mm-hmm. so that future generations in that community still have access to healthcare. Yeah. So like, so with telehealth, I mean, you know, we've talked about that quite a bit in, in our, the rural communities we visit and stuff, just the equitable aspects of that. I'm curious, how has, have you guys seen COVID affect the adoption of telehealth? Has that kind of leapfrogged forward a little bit? So it's leapfrogged forward and then leapfrogged backwards. How so? So interestingly, um, when, gosh, it's been two years now, if you can imagine that. It's hard to believe we've been in this in this mess for two years. When COVID first hit, we had a significant uptick of early, adopter, early adopters, both on the provider side as well as the community side mm-hmm. on telemedicine. Right. What we have seen now that we've plateaued, things have opened up a little bit, we're actually able to get some of these specialists back out into these communities for a for probably the better part of about eight to 10 months, we didn't have the ability to get our specialists into these communities because of all the COVID lockdowns and restrictions. Um, And so what we've seen though is now that things have started to open up, Mm -hmm. that utilization of telemedicine has slid backwards. We're not where we were pre-COVID, but we're certainly closer there than where we were at the peak of telemedicine utilization. Yeah, And there's still some challenges, right? I mean, there's the physicians aren't being compensated well, if at all, for the telemedicine visits. There's, right, the coding on that's tricky. It is. Um, we're kind of we're hoping that COVID is going to push the federal government to uh, to embrace telemedicine, especially for the rural communities, right. in a little different way. So yeah, and then with, I mean, with that, because like I was wondering about you know the adoption rates and stuff with COVID. Obviously, everyone got a little more comfortable doing stuff online. And then the, the other aspect of that is what is patient satisfaction like with Obviously, there's the rural aspect of it, but now adding that telemedicine piece in, what's the patient satisfaction like? 
Yeah, you know, I don't know that anybody in the rural communities has specifically done any type of patient experience or patient satisfaction. It's all pretty new, I guess. Um, survey, a, a statistically significant survey, if you will. Right. Um, but I think the early adoption really came from not necessarily because they were super enthused about it and enjoyed it, but it was the only way to access some of that care. Yeah. Um, you know, rural folks like to sit down and have conversations face-to-face, right? right? You still... In the rural communities, a man's word and a handshake is better than any contract that uh, they'll they'll be uh, they'll be willing to sign. Same thing goes for healthcare, right? They want to sit down, they want to have a conversation with their provider. Yeah, um, they don't want it to be um, limited to that fifteen minute treatment time, so right. productivity and efficiency is affected, and those kinds of things. And so, though all of those things that that are so great about the rural communities, that oftentimes the urban and suburban communities don't understand uh-huh. um, are the things that kind of get in the way to some degree for allowing us to, to provide help. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, what you guys are working on this coming year that we're excited about. Yeah. So, you know, for us, it's a couple things. Um, one advancing our mission and ministry as Centura. Right. Um, we intend to grow. Um, we intend to serve more folks in Colorado and Western Kansas. Um, we need to do that. For a number of different reasons. One, because our mission calls us to do that. Sure. And there are people that need that access to care. Um, if we intend to continue to be the number one or number two health system in the state, right. then we have to grow at the same rate that our population and, and the economies are growing as well. Mm-hmm. At least you know, from a front-range perspective. The challenge is the majority of those rural economies are not growing. Um, many of them are shrinking. Right. That's also a big driver for us to figure out how we can help these rural critical access hospitals come out of COVID and not be in a place where they're having to think about closing their doors. These critical access hospitals are typically the number one or number two employer in their county. Right. And they typically employ some of the highest wage earners in the county. Mm-hmm. Um, if the hospital dies, the local economy dies. Yeah. If the local economy dies, the hospital dies. And so there, there is an embedded connection between the two that a lot of people don't really necessarily understand. And so for a rural community to thrive, they need a really good solid healthcare program. Mm -hmm. If those rural communities want to attract folks to move back into those communities, they want to go there and know that they don't have to drive an hour and a half or two or three to get to a hospital if something happens and they need it or just for their primary care. Yeah. Um, and so part of what we intend to do this next year is really kind of build on the framework that we've, we've put in place, which is Centra 2025. Um, that really gets us focused on making sure that we're improving access to care, um, addressing social determinants of care or social determinants uh, of health, um, really looking at what we're doing to help um, eliminate food deserts. So for us at Centura, healthcare is less about seeing a doctor when you're sick mm-hmm. and, and improving the overall and total health of a community. Yeah. And so how do we do that? There are food deserts in Denver. Yeah, absolutely. There's also food deserts in Alamosa. There's food deserts in La Junta. There's food deserts in Eads. Yeah. All through the Eastern Plains, Western Slope. And so we're trying to work with folks to understand how do we address behavioral health? How do we address making sure that people have healthy things to eat? Right. Um, and all of that improve, you know, improves the overall total health of, of, the, of the community. Yeah. So those are some of the things that we're going to be focused on with a, with a high degree of kind of 
rigor and and disproportionate investment into those kinds of strategies. Yeah, I know. Just in our conversations with with all these communities, something that comes up frequently with with healthcare, especially, is like you said, attracting these providers back to those communities and keeping them there. We have a lot of issues with, I understand, with yeah, just that almost that recruitment to a community. Is there a way that you guys are working to address that? So part of it is we have to be open to alternative care delivery models. Okay. So that includes telemedicine, but it also includes, um, you know, a nurse practitioner care delivery system, a PA care delivery system right. in conjunction with an MD or DO provider. Yeah. It's really, really tough right. to get those folks to come to the rural communities. Um, they typically have to be from a rural community and have a passion and an understanding. There's a partiality there. Absolutely. Um, And then, you know, they have to also understand that, you know, there's probably not a Walmart or a mall or something Mm -hmm. to that effect real close by. Right. So, and we joke, we say, you know, that's sometimes you, you find a great, uh, you find a great provider, um, but the cell is really their spouse or partner. Absolutely. hundred percent. Because they're going to be the one that's, sitting at home trying to figure out how do I work remotely? How do I work at all? And, right. you know, if I want to, there's no just running to the mall yeah. um, on your day off. And so it takes a, a pretty unique complement of, of both of those folks for us to be able to attract. We've got, we've been recruiting in one particular uh, organization that I work with. We've been trying to recruit a primary care doc for over 18 months. Wow. We've had, we've had one person apply for it. Hmm. Um, and so it, it is really tough. Now, Again, those communities aren't early adopters of alternative care models. Yeah, okay. But if they intend to have healthcare in the future, those folks have to embrace that. Right. And in some communities, um, that's been forced by the hospital because they didn't have any other option. Uh-huh. And then retrospectively, you look back two to three years, and, and folks have adopted it because it's what is there. Yeah, yeah. And I've literally had conversations with, with patients in our rural communities where I've said, well, who, who's your doctor? Well, my doctor is Amy. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy's, Amy's not a, nurse a doctor. Practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's my doctor. Right. Um, and so that that whole mindset. Sometimes you have to force that um, to get some of the mindset and culture to to shift. So. Interesting. Yeah, I mean it's it's really an interesting combination. Just like I said, in our conversations around these communities, to hear all those issues: the attracting the right talent, keeping them there, access to care, quality of care. It's it's an interesting thing. Like you said that early adoption piece, it really, I think call it, it asks a lot of the, the leadership there just in the community, you know, town councils and things like that to kind of drive that and give those opportunities to expand. I know, yeah, a lot of our partnerships are working on, on that, improving the, maybe the offering the community has for these, these providers, but also like I said, their families. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing is the lifespan of a physician in a rural community is about two and a half or three years. Oh, really? Um, and a lot of these folks, the days of your, your local doc having been there and, and delivered you, yeah. <laughs> delivered your kid, your grandkid, right? those days are long gone. You know, those, yeah. And those docs are all starting to, to hit retirement age. And those communities want another doc that's going to come in and be there for 40 years to practice. And that's just not the culture of the physicians that are coming out of medical school today. Yeah. Um, and so that proves a big challenge as well. Now, there's some things that we can do to incentivize providers to engage in rural communities. Mm-hmm. That said, those folks are going to come and do their two or three years. They're going to check that box. They're going to get some of their medical school loans sure. forgiven. And then they're going to be 
on to the next place, probably right. a bigger city. Right. Um, and so it does, it does create some challenges for the community to understand, you know, golly, why can't you guys just get a physician in here? Yeah. Uh, it's just not that easy. Yeah. So circle, circling back a little bit, but kind of finishing up, what, what should we be excited to look forward to with Centura Health in the next year? Yeah. Um, watching us build flourishing communities all over the state of Colorado and Western Kansas yeah. and, and doing things that most people would not attach a, um, an assimilance to healthcare or, right. or being sick and providing health. We're, we're engaged in a whole lot of things um, that are going to build healthy people, vibrant communities, and empower our frontline caregivers to be the best that they can be and yeah. to do what they're passionate about. That's awesome. That's exciting. It well, is. cool. Thank you so much. Absolutely. For being here. You bet. All right. Christy Lee with Lockheed Martin. Welcome to Action 22, Making yeah. Action Happen. So tell me a little about, about yourself, what you do with Lockheed Martin, and tell me a little about what Lockheed Martin does for Colorado. Sure. Uh, my name is Christy Lee, so I handle state and local government relations for Lockheed Martin Space. Uh, our space company is headquartered here in Colorado, so our larger corporation is broken down into four different business areas. Um, I handle the space division, which is the coolest division, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, space, Mars, things, right? cool things. Uh, so our space company is headquartered here in Jefferson County. Okay. Uh, I'm a native of Colorado and grew up in eastern Colorado, so Action 22 is... Um, a dear friend yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and knows the struggles. Uh, but yeah, so thanks for having me today. How long have you been with Lockheed Martin? Been with Lockheed uh, nine years. It'll be 10 at the end of this year. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's your background and that you got into aerospace? Uh, it lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I worked at the state legislature uh, for seven years before uh, working at Lockheed, uh, doing non-po- nonpartisan policy mm-hmm. uh, work for legislative council. And then uh, my current boss, Joe Rice, uh, he's the director of government relations. He was a state legislator and my committee chair for years. Okay. Uh, so when he got the job over at Lockheed, uh, you know, he, he took he me with, call. yeah, he knew who to call. Nice. I, I, I gotcha. <laughs> so, so with that, I mean, we've been asking everybody really, you know, what's something exciting going on, but Lockheed always has something Ooh, exciting going yeah. on. Yeah, so Lockheed Martin Space builds things that people use every day. Okay. Um, you know, we build GPS satellites. Uh, I know I use that every day. <laughs> um, and we've, we have actually had people, you know, say, oh, why do we need satellites? My GPS on my phone works great. Like, what do you think the S and, stands yeah. for? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so GPS, and that's actually a military program. A lot of people also don't uh, realize that. So the U.S. Space Force is our customer on that. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, a number of different military communications, satellites, weather satellites, um, things we can't talk about. Sure. Uh, but on the civil space side, you know, one of the big exciting programs we have is the Artemis mission for NASA. Okay. So that's the next manned mission to the moon uh, to bring our astronauts back to the moon. Uh-huh. Uh, we are building the capsule that'll be taking our astronauts to the moon. Uh, cool. And then that'll be on board of the space launch system, which is the rocket that Boeing is building that'll launch us to the moon. Um, our first uncrewed test flight of Artemis 1 is launching in March of this year. Oh, wow. So well, right around yeah. the corner. It's all happening. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, and how, I mean, how is maybe your job or at least the the mission of of your department shifted with space force uh yeah <laughs> in, in every yeah. way you know I mean, was it was it a big change for you guys 
So there's a couple issues. So there's the Space Force and then there's Space Command. Okay. Um, and so Space Command has been a hot topic of, you know, keeping it in Colorado. Should it stay in Colorado? Right. Since we're, we're uh, nationwide, you know, we don't have uh, a skin in that game. But uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I think uh, it'll be brought up again. I think they'll reassess everything and, and we'll find out in the next few years, you yeah. know, what's going on there. Uh, but for us, you know, we're we're across the whole country, so you know, I think um, everything impacts us one way or another. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that next part. You know, what is why is rural Colorado important to to yourself and to Lockheed Martin? Obviously, you're, you said like you're a native, so yeah. you, got, you do have a little skin in that game. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I had the same struggles uh, I think a lot of kids in rural Colorado do. Uh, lack of internship programs, lack of opportunities. I think, you know, it's just you you don't see aerospace every day, right? right? I mean, you're right. in rural Colorado. I think my first job was in a plastic factory uh-huh. for catering equipment and then, um, you know, worked at the grocery store or whatever, you know. So, in yeah. and, and so it's, about nine years ago, then Governor Hickenlooper had asked the aerospace community, you know, we're very front range focused. All of right. the major companies are along the front range. And there's reasons for that, you know, the military installations and those types of things. But he asked, you know, how can we get the rest of the state more involved in aerospace? Uh-huh. So through the Colorado Space Business Roundtable, we're on the board. Uh, we developed these aerospace uh, road trips. Okay. So we brought prime contractors to communities all over the state, Western Slope, Eastern Plains. We do about two to four a year where we bring out prime contractors, Ball, Lockheed, Boeing, Sierra Space, uh-huh. and we just talk to them, what does it mean to get into the supply chain? How do you get into the supply chain? Yeah. Which is very onerous and time-consuming. Um, but what certifications do you need to work in aerospace? You know, there's a lot of small machine shops out there that could do business with aerospace. They just don't know how or don't have the right connections. So that's what these business development road trips were, were set to do. And then on our very first trip in Durango, we had a group of high school students come up Uh with the same issues I had in high school. And they said, Hey, you know, we also like aerospace and we want, uh, we would like to get more involved. Our parents don't work in, you know, aerospace companies and we don't have connections. Can you help us? So, uh, I developed a two week internship program for rural high school and college students that runs every summer, um, about nine years ago. And we scholarship them to come stay on the front range for two weeks. They get to visit all the various aerospace companies, spend a day with engineers. What does it mean? I think a lot of kids, want to be involved in aerospace and work in aerospace, Uh but they don't know what that means. You know, what is the difference between an electrical engineer and a mechanical engineer? So we try to get young engineers come in and talk to them. We show them really cool things and tours. Um, And, you know, that program has been running for nine years. We've had just over 250 students go through it since it began. So that's near and dear to my heart. And I'm glad those students came up to us (laughs) and, and asked. So. And I mean, how do they, so how do they get into that program? Like how, like what, so, I mean, just from this standpoint, yeah. how can they find out more about that, that program? Yeah. So, uh, the Colorado space business Roundtable's website, Colorado uh-huh. uh, under the programs tab is an application. Okay. Uh, so students just go and apply and it goes directly to me. Uh-huh. And since it's began, I have not had to turn anyone away just cause schedules time, you know, everyone yeah, it's, it's worked out. Yeah. So, um, so please spread the, spread the word. And 
I'll also add that this year, um, Lockheed Martin put $25,000 towards the program uh-huh. to expand it to teachers. Oh, really? Yeah. So we'll be doing a, a teacher program as well. So a teacher as far academy. As how, to, how to teach the kids about these programs or um, like, like teach more about engineering stuff or how to, what, what's the program with the teachers? Yeah, so it'll be similar to the student program. Just what are we doing in aerospace in Colorado? And they can, and they the, can come out and see mm-hmm. like first. Yeah, tours and uh-huh. what? Yeah, what what are we looking for? What types of skills do we need? Yeah. And what programs are out there? You know, I think unless you you know just study the news all the time, I don't know right. where you get the information on space, right? So right. I think this will be a great opportunity for them to see it firsthand. Yeah. Now, is there like a certain grade range, age range, or is it just high school? Is that um, for the teacher one, we'll go a little lower. I think, um, I think we did six and up sixth okay. grade and up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so this will be the pilot year. So first year. Yeah. So, well, we'll have to have you back to explain to us how it went tell us how it went. Yeah. I would love to. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I'm with probably the rest of the general public. I had no idea you guys did something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a big issue too, is getting, um, some of these kids who are attending rural high schools. I don't know if it's necessarily the word, the opportunity is the right word, but like all the information they need to decide where they want to go to school, what they want to be doing. Right. Um, do you feel like there's kids that, that go there that think they want to go into aerospace and then they're, they're just like, this isn't for me after, after seeing it up close. So what I always say is I, I, uh, save a lot of parents, a lot of money <laughs> because, yeah, right. because just me for, you know, if I had an internship opportunity like that, I would have been like, yep, this is what I want to do. I'm done. Right. But you know, I've seen, I've seen some students, you know, they were dead set on being a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. and then they talked to one and they saw what they did every day. And they're like, Oh no, I meant a systems engineer, right. you know, like, but so yeah, but segregating like what the difference yeah, really what, is. Yeah. And so I think showing them. And I also think, you know, this program is really focused on, rural students at all levels, uh-huh. you know, we're not just top of the top, you know, if you're right. straight A's, you can apply. It's every student. Cause I think, you know, we've had students C's, D's, sure. just not motivated. Right. And then, you know, it's like, why would I do STEM? Like that was me in high school. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I was not a good student. <laughs> I have a story there too. <laughs> um, so, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, like why yeah. would I do those hard things when I live out here and what's the point? Right. And then I bring them out and they see the Orion spacecraft and where the astronauts sit and, you yeah. know, the components that go into that. And they're like, oh, wait, that's what that translates into. And then they get excited and motivated. And I've had the CD student turn around to A's and B's for the rest of their yeah. school just because they, they have, they yeah, yeah, they have that motivation. Yeah, I didn't have that. We'll, we'll compare notes later because <laughs> yeah, I, I got some stories, too, about the education piece. Um, yeah. And so at. At Lockheed Martin in general, what are some exciting things that we should look forward to this next year? Yeah, so Artemis for sure is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that'll take our astronauts back to the moon. And it'll be the first woman to step foot, foot on the moon. Oh, cool. So super exciting. That's yeah. in the next few years. Uh, and then one near and dear to my heart in Colorado is we partnered with the state last year on the Firehawk helicopter. Uh-huh. Uh, so Colorado procured its first firefighting asset that it owns. Okay. Uh, and that is, is sharing it, right? Uh, no, it's the state of Colorado will own it. it. Okay. Yeah, so it can be deployed anywhere in the state in two. It can get anywhere in the state in under two hours. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then the Firehawk is a Sikorsky Blackhawk base. Uh huh. So you know it's military uh, proven and yeah. it can fly in high winds and all the different things that a lot of um, current systems cannot do. But um, that's a Lockheed Martin Sikorsky helicopter. So yeah. we worked with the state on that. They'll get theirs next year. Mm-hmm. 
So really exciting. And especially after the Marshall fire and everything that yeah. that's happened, one benefit is, um, this has a belly tank rather than a bucket. Okay. So you can fight fires easier over residential areas because you don't have to worry about something hanging for power lines and those types of things. Yeah. Uh, so really excited uh, to partner with the state to solve a huge issue here. Yeah, that's something that so many people, especially, like I said, with the Marshall Fire recently, but then just the last few years, we've, I think just about every part of Colorado has been touched by fire-related stuff. Absolutely. So that's awesome. That's super yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah, really cool. So here in Colorado, all the way to the moon, you guys are just doing it all, right? Yeah, yeah. Mile closer to space is what we say, you know. Mile closer to space. <laughs> I like that. Um, any last thoughts with anything else you want to share with us? No, you know, I just encourage any students and teachers to apply for those programs if you're yeah. interested in space. Uh, I really could use more from eastern Colorado. Okay. Uh, I get a lot from the western uh, slope, but those eastern kids got to get on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us the website one more time. Uh, so go to coloradosbr.org, and there's a programs tab, and underneath that programs tab is the student application and the teacher application. Wonderful. Cool. Thank you so yeah. much for being with us, and... We'll get you back here soon. Thank you. All right, thanks. All right, and hello there, Mike McVaugh from HDR. How are you? Doing good today. Thank Pretty you. good. Thanks for being here with us. Happy to be here. So tell us a little about you, your organization, what, what you guys are up to. So um, Mike McVaugh with HDR. Uh, we're an engineering architectural firm. Okay. Uh, originally, we started in 1917 in Nebraska. Oh, wow. And our primary focus when we started was to support transportation and infrastructure for the rural parts of Nebraska. Okay. So that was our, that's our bread and butter where we started. Yeah. And so just recently, um, HDR hired me after 28 years with uh, Colorado Department of Transportation. Okay. To help expand our market into the western slope of Colorado and rural Colorado. Okay. And so you said you were with CDOT for 28 years? Yes. And how long have you been with HDR? I've been one year. One year? One year. Started during the pandemic. I would say right at the best time possible, you got into it. <laughs> yep. And how's that going? It's going really well. Yeah. Going really well right now. Um, for me, my focus is really trying to, you know, build a, a stronger relationship with people uh, to support rural Colorado, and particularly in the Western Slope. Uh, mm-hmm. Doing work in uh, Montrose County right now with a, a new signal uh, just south of Montrose. Okay. Uh, we're also doing a big reconstruction project with CDOT through city of Grand Junction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a bridge structure up on State Highway 13. So that's a lot of the transportation stuff. Right. But we also have the architectural side where there's some other work that I'm working on right now that I can't really, I have a non-disclosure <laughs> agreement, unfortunately. Not, we can't get into here. But um, it's a very big development that uh, is going to be a public facility for people. And it's 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 got a just incredible, you know, this isn't your normal development. It is for public purpose and we have a great philanthropist that really wants to do this work. And it's something that's going to really you know, kind of change the face of things uh, when this comes on. And yeah. I'm really excited to, because I get to do more than just transportation now. Right. I'm reaching out and, and doing other things like this development that's going to help the public. Yeah. Now, now, does HDR typically do mostly like industrial type stuff? Um, that ha- that's been, no. Okay. Uh, like our architectural group, they really focus on uh, uh, hospitals and healthcare. And oh, they do okay. a lot of work in that area. Um, but we also do power. We do energy. We do solar. Um, it's, wow. it's very, very broad. You know, and, and HDR is an employee-owned company. Okay. Uh, over 10,000 employees worldwide. Wow. But in Colorado alone, we have over 500 employees in Colorado. Okay. And so and worldwide, I mean, 
uh, like how many countries are we in? Oh my goodness. Uh, you asked me a tough question. <laughs> I, I don't off the top of my head. I don't have the total number of companies, yeah. but we're in Germany, Saudi Arabia, uh, South Korea, Australia. Uh, recently I did a, a webinar with uh, our counterparts in Australia and that was really weird because we're talking to them at 930. It's 930 at night here in Colorado, 8 a.m. Oh, in the morning. Right, right. So, but it's worldwide. Yeah. Uh, we do a lot of Department of Defense work where uh, some of the things we're doing right now is just helping them with their housing situations. You know, a lot of these military bases have housing from the 70s. And right. They need upgraded. They need improved. They're really in bad shape. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of work in, in that area yeah. also. So it, our, it's amazing the level of expertise and how broad our expertise is. Right. I mean, it sounds like you guys are in a little bit of everything architecturally. Yes. Architecturally, engineering-wise also. Yeah. So, um, but we do power transmission lines. We do the transportation side of things, uh, water, 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 and wastewater. So water treatment plants, wastewater treatment plants. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of construction services. So we also help people with construction. But then we also have another group that we help write grants for people. Mm -hmm. And we can do economic evaluations and analysis because a lot of times for federal grants, mm -hmm. you got to show what that 20 or 50-year benefit's going to be uh -huh. if you get the grant. So we actually have teams of people and economists that help us do that work. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is quite a variety of interests. It's very, very broad. So, I mean, and you touch on a lot of stuff that's near and dear to, to our hearts with Action 22, you know, the, the water issues, the energy issues, the things we talk about yep. all the time. Um, why, you know, why is rural Colorado really important? How do you see it as important for, for what HDR is doing? I think it's because we really want to help people. And that's, yeah. that goes back to our, our beginnings. Mm -hmm. The beginning was, you know, rural Nebraska, farmers, ranchers out there, they didn't have electricity in 1917. They didn't even have good roads in 1917. Sure. So it was, how do we help them? How do we make their world, their life better? Right. And that's what HPR, HDR is about. Yeah. Wow. No, that's, I mean, that's impressive. I have no idea, like, the, just the portfolio that you guys have. It's broad. It's very <laughs> broad. It's even, what was really interesting is I was looking before we came, sat down today and uh, looking at all the different types of projects we do, and we even do work in Antarctica. Wow. And I'll, so it's broad. <laughs> yeah. It's really broad. Um, so, I mean, so what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing? Um, uh, let, let's focus on that rural Colorado piece. What are some of the things that, that you're trying to get over? I think the biggest thing right now, uh, and coming from CDOT and my knowledge at CDOT and watching things over the years is rural broadband. That's huge. That right. is one of the biggest things for rural Colorado right now, really trying to build that up and, and, and help to get those connections made where, you know, people can be more active, more functional with the world. Right. And it also helps build business. It builds economy. It really helps strengthen outside of those metro areas. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and of course, we get in those rural areas. We talk a lot about, you know, equity with, the, with that infrastructure. Yep. Equity is huge because, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's like trying to swing a baseball bat with one arm. It just doesn't work. Uh-huh. And so you got to have that balance. you got to have those elements that come in there mm -hmm. because not everybody's going to move to the city or be in the city or that business doesn't fit in the city. Right. you still got to have those rural aspects that help support the overall good for everyone. Yeah, and I think a, a, like the, the adoption rate is interesting. I mean, a lot of these rural communities, don't, certain issues, they don't want to be early adopters to it. They don't want to embrace that right away. There's that, and then there's also the how do I do it? 
that fear of I've never done it before. How do we get there? So, you know, the early adopter or can you show me that pathway of how to get there and what's the best way to do this? And a lot of this and what I've seen in the rural parts is it is actually communities and different cities and counties coming together mm-hmm. to find a solution because they can't right. do it on their own. Right. No, it's, it's absolutely building out that network of, I mean, interested parties. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's what we're all about with, with Action 22, Club 20, Pro 15. Yep. That's a big partnership because people honestly are a lot more moderate in general than maybe we're led to, to believe. And people, we all have the same values at the end of the day. We do. And, and we want to make sure everybody's successful. We want to help each other and make sure that we can find our way and, yeah. and, and really try to bring these things together. And that's where, for me, being, I'm, I'm with HDR, but I'm also on the transportation committee for Club 20. Okay. So, you know, I look at it from how do we try to improve things for everyone, you know? Right. And, it, and it, it really plays out that way. I mean, you start thinking about the rural parts of Colorado. People think of I-70 in the western slope. That's a major artery. Sure. When that artery goes down, mm-hmm. are the other roads ready for it? Yeah. You know, we got we to gotta look at those things. And in those small towns, mm-hmm. when they get overrun because of that happening, how do they adapt to it? How do they yeah. help people and take care of people? Being being more collaborative and building this together is what we need to do. Yeah, that collaboration piece is huge. Yep. And that's and actually that's kind of the wheelhouse I think for a lot of rural communities. We they understand that community piece, you know, having all those things in common and yeah, driving the same direction. I think that's why I love still living in Durango myself because <laughs> right. the community is, is it's much stronger. You feel it, you see it, right. and that's where I think that's what the value of rural Colorado brings. Yeah, and that's the thing where, you, where people, because people recognize that whether you grew up in a rural environment or not, that small town community, like you, f- you feel it. You, you internalize do. that a little bit. Yep. So, so what are you guys most excited about working on this coming year? Oh, well, I guess let me back that for you, <laughs> for you being with HR during the pandemic, starting that way, you have a year under your belt. Um, what are you excited for this next year, and what what should we look forward to? I think. The biggest thing I'm excited for right now is, you know, we've got a lot of federal funding coming to the states right now. Mm -hmm. And what is that going to look like? Where is it going to go? You know, because there's still all these formulas that are being worked out for, you know, for, you know, greenhouse gas reductions or transportation or, you know, we just sat through a conversation on housing and and education. You know, where is that funding going to go and how can we help people to get to what they need to with that funding. Right. So there's a lot of unknowns right now because we're still trying to figure that out. Um, for me, being a transportation person, CDOT was thinking they were going to have their funding formula figured out and what that funding would be right. for future projects. Well, that's now just been put off till about June. Uh-huh. So, you know, everybody's on that, that ready and, and that's where we're at. We're ready to really try to step up and help people. So when that project that they didn't have funding for and this new funding comes forward, they finally have a chance to do it. We want to be there to help them with that. Yeah. When you guys, I mean, you have a lot of avenues you can explore, go down to, to do that, to help out. And I think that's the big thing about HGR, you know, ask us, we probably have somebody that's been there or done that. We just have such a tremendous resource group that we've probably got somebody that can help most any situation. Yeah. Well, I love that word resource. You know, I, we like, we're the same way you know, organization, our organization wants to be a resource for, you know, access to different, uh, different services, different goods mm-hmm. in our communities, but being a resource when it's that wide and you know broad with, with HDR, that's really a, an exciting thing. It is. 
It is, <laughs> and that's that's probably when you ask me, you know, what's what's the exciting thing about this? When I started with HR, I didn't understand this. Uh-huh. After a year in, I've got a much better idea now, but boy, it's still bigger than what I totally realized. Right. Um, but and that's what for me um, they call it. You know, I'm I'm kind of a cross sector guy. Uh-huh. I do transportation, but I'm doing so much other stuff yeah. and different elements, and that's what I love. After 28 years of moving up and being in strong leadership roles my last few years yeah. at CDOT, I get to be an engineer again. Right. It's awesome. Right. Well, and I mean, especially, you know, in with uh, with nonprofits, with small communities, we're talking about a lot of people who know how to wear a lot of hats mm-hmm. and want to be involved in kind of everything. Yeah. And so it's so great that to hear like an organization like yours is out there doing doing that on a, on a broader scale like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, let me, let me kind of, wraps up asking you what um, what changes has COVID really, what challenges has it placed on your organization? And how do you see that evolving going forward? As obviously, we're not looking at an on and off switch with COVID anymore. It's so carrying the big, it forward. The biggest change I think that evolved a little bit, and, and it's actually helped me with, you know, when HDR said, Mike, we'd like to open an office in Durango. Yeah. Um, because of COVID, going to remote work, probably open more doors for me to be able to stay in Durango, stay in that rural community, stay where I can help people more effectively. And they know they have a resource close by to help them. Yeah. And COVID opened those doors for us so that we could do that. And so what we've ended up doing at this point, we have five different people right now, just on the Western slope. I'm in Durango. Mm -hmm. We have a person that's a mine reclamation specialist in Ridgeway. We Uh have a water person that is a specialist in rifle. Right. And then we have a person that came from the Corps of Engineers oh, cool. that is in Grand, Grand Junction. And so we have these resources that are closer to where the needs are at mm-hmm. so that we can help support people. And I think that opens doors for rural Colorado because HDR is a big company. Right. And we have a lot of resources, but because of the remote, what's the right term, the um, the need for virtual engagement Mm-hmm. It's so strong now, and we've we've refined that. Right, we can actually help people better. Yeah, wow, it's great to have early adopters, innovative ideas, and stuff. Yep. So wonderful. Thank you so much. Any any last thoughts? Um, I think it's just I, I think it's wonderful that we we came together with the Royal Voices of Colorado Club Twenty Action Twenty Two uh, Pro Fifteen, really sitting down to talk through these things and bring everybody together because it is a statewide problem, statewide issues, and having this gathering is really important for us. Wonderful. Mike, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, sir. Awesome. All right. So we are here with Armando Valdez, our new rural development person from USDA. Is that right? You got it, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Oh, so good, man. Thank- Voices of Rural Colorado. We're wrapping this up a little bit. Um, what, are, what are your big takeaways from the, the conference we've had? Well, absolutely. I've loved being here this morning with Rural Voices and yesterday, all day in the conference. There's right. been a lot of great speakers talking about a lot of the different issues which are impacting rural Colorado. So I'm glad people are focusing a spotlight on all these different aspects because yeah. rural Colorado has needs right. and we don't always have the same resource base. Right. I come from rural Colorado, mm-hmm. born and raised. And so I'm a product of rural Colorado. So I definitely have a deep passion yeah. in wanting to see it succeed, not only for myself, but also for future generations because Rural Colorado has to thrive for right. Colorado to have a solid foundation for a future. Yeah, absolutely. How long have you been with USDA? 
So I've been there about a month and a half. Month and a half. Brand new. So Perfect. Brand new. Perfect. Brand new That's what, is part of it. So, so we got some fresh a, blood. But getting settled into the role very nicely. It was an exciting opportunity to, to, to find to have, how to have a positive impact. Yeah. And one of the exciting aspects of making that positive impact is rural development and USDA brings resources for rural communities, whether yeah. it's through loans or through grants. We have several different projects or several different opportunities for rural communities to benefit. I think a lot of people are misinformed, uninformed, completely uninformed about, about that funding, how it's available. Like what kind of things have you already seen in the role about, about that misinformation? Well, I think you bring up a great point. And when people think about USDA, a lot of times they think about the, the, the farm and ranch production aspects of it, right? You know, farm programs that go towards helping livestock producers or commodity producers. They don't think really about the community development. Right. And so first of all, one of my first initiatives is how do we get a strong branded presence not only for USDA as a whole, but also for rural development. Because mm-hmm. rural development covers such a broad area beyond what's happening in the farm and ranch. Now, I'm a farmer right. and rancher, so that's very important to me. But it's also nice to know that there's programs available not only for farmers and ranchers, but for the entire rural community. Right. Areas that want to focus on rural broadband. How do we focus on affordable housing? How do we look at infrastructure, especially water and wastewater projects mm-hmm. that impact a lot of our towns, cities, and municipalities in rural Colorado? Yeah. Those are areas that we can really bring to the table. Now, to answer your question about how do you find access on them, mm-hmm. we have seven state offices. Okay. And connecting to a specialist, you know, specifically a loan specialist in the area can help with, now I, I, I say that, that their title is a loan specialist, mm-hmm. but we do have a lot of grants as well. Okay. It's really, they should be called money specialists yeah. because they are focused on funds. You know, they, some are loans, some are direct, some are guaranteed. Others are uh, direct grants, which go out to recipients. So like I say, they're really more about fund or money specialists that help to get to these communities. Mm -hmm. And so they can contact any of the offices. All of our offices are flexible and interchangeable to work with any community around the state. But we do have an office in Alamosa, Cortez, Delta, Craig, Los Animas Ray, and then one in Lakewood at the state office where I'm at. I was going to ask you where you're, where you're based out of, and where are you from originally? You well, I'm from the San Luis Valley, a little community called Capulín, Colorado, which uh-huh. is located in Canales County. Okay. Um, which very, we, very proud of that area. We've all heard of and know exactly where it is, right? Very prominent area. <laughs> and, and so what's, what's happened, you know, through, through the pandemic and, and with COVID, it's actually created a lot of opportunities for virtual workspaces. Okay. And so for me, it's created a flexible workspace. So I'm working out of northern Colorado when I'm out of the Lakewood office, but right. I'm working in southern Colorado when I'm out of my home office and Alamosa office in southern Colorado. So it gets me to have a presence around the state and connect more with individuals. Yeah. We need to get this money out there. This money is dedicated for Colorado, but we can't get the money to work unless I can get people to apply for it. Right. And so getting to apply for it is to connect with our offices. Uh, we have a virtual presence through USDA uh, USDA.gov and going to rural development has a list of all of our programs. We have over 50 programs available. So there definitely is something for every single community to be able to benefit from. And we have specific programs that are designated for smaller communities, five and 10,000 or less. Mm -hmm. So it's not just all the bigger communities getting, getting a lot of the resources. And then there's other programs that do fit for 20,000 communities or less or 50,000 or less. And then we have even some programs that don't even require a rural designation, which could be anywhere in the state even in some of our metro areas. Yeah. And see, these are stuff that, yeah, absolutely. I think people just don't know about, they, right? They don't. And so that's, then that's my job. 
Nice. And that's my job to how to promote greater outreach, greater access, greater awareness of all the programs mm -hmm. and help my staff connect to the communities and individuals who need the resources. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I know and I've seen that you're already out and about trying to get in, trying to touch as many of these communities as you can. Trying as much. What's the biggest impediment to, to reaching those? I mean, is it just a matter of being able to travel to those areas? Obviously, with COVID, there's some inherent restrictions. But I mean, is it a manpower thing? Like what for you, what do you think is the, the angle we need to take to to reach those communities more efficiently? The barriers are two parts. I think, first of all, it's 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 the physical barriers of Colorado. Colorado's a big state. I think big we're place. the eighth largest state in the nation. Yeah. That's a lot, of, a lot of country, a lot of windshield time trying to get to have that physical presence. Right. Um, part of it is is always staffing. I would I would love to have more more staffing in our offices, and our staff are dedicated to processing and working through current applications. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes outreach sometimes is a secondary activity okay. for them because sure. we're trying to work with applicants that are requesting some of the dollars. Yeah, and you're already maxing out your manpower that you, way. In, in that way. And so that's yeah. where I, I would love to have more specifically dedicated just for some of that promotion and outreach. Mm -hmm. And then the third part has been COVID. You know, everyone kind of isolated, you know, hunkered down into their own individual communities. Right. And so how do we re-engage those communities to have that, that uh, interaction to where they understand and know about the resources? So that's why I wholeheartedly believe that uh, that these that these entities that we have, such as Action Twenty Two and, and and Pro Fifteen and Club Twenty, can really you know venture to to, to get this message out right. to really connect with their members, but then also the networks of their members that are directly in their community, mm -hmm. because you know that's that's the that's the phenomenon right. of our technology. Right. Things will go viral. I want rural development to go viral, <laughs> and I want our programs that we work on to go viral. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that, like I said, it's it. There's a way that people communicate already. And then with COVID, I think, like I said, it gives us an opportunity to work remotely, but that's also where people go to find their information. Correct. You know, people, we're all walking around with a computer in our pocket and we immediately go look through those things. Do you think there's a hesitance for some of these rural communities to, to ask for that money? Absolutely. And, and I, I don't know if there's a hesitancy so much for asking for the money as there is the overwhelming nature that's sometimes associated with the application process uh -huh. or all the eligibility details that are associated with it. And so some people start getting part way in and then they back out because they feel overwhelmed. Yeah. So one of the initiatives that I'm working on here within the state is how to work with partners to maybe find individuals who can assist in the application process. Mm -hmm. So when they do have questions, they can come see our staff, but right. then we can also have knowledgeable individuals that can help them ease some of that tension, ease yeah. some of that apprehension and be able to work towards building, you know, in, getting the information, gathering it and help them put it into the application process. Right. I really, I really want to overcome that barrier, but because yeah. our programs have a lot of details to them. Right. And because they have a lot of details, I do really feel people get overwhelmed. What kind of partners would you be looking for to help with that, help improve that situation? Yeah. County governments, municipal, nonprofits. I'm open to a lot of different options of how do we give them kind of train the trainer yeah. types of yeah. approaches, um, get some templates, best practices, give them some examples of mm -hmm. other projects that have been utilized, give them a, a variety of options, but having kind of a, a, a connecting partner point. Mm -hmm. So if someone says, I'm interested in a program, we could say, yes, here's our program, here's our program information. And we also have some partners out in our community that can help you know, guide you through this process because right. either they've been through it or they're prepared to offer information on it too. Yeah, and having them locally, I think, I mean, all especially rural communities, there's so much credibility lent to people who, who have an idea what actually happens in yeah, that and community. And that's a great, that's a great point, Micah. You know, you know in some part, part of it too is that if you see it virtually, there's, 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 uh, there's not that authentic presence connected right. with it. What's that genuine nature? Mm -hmm. What's that rapport? Yeah. And, and you bring up an excellent point. If they know someone in their community who they trust, 
they are more likely to then engage in the process right. because then the process becomes more legitimate to them. It yeah. becomes easier to them, more familiar to them. And sometimes they just need that, that helpful assist. Right. And that's, that's an excellent point that you raise. Yeah. So, so going forward in the next, for this first year that you're going to be in this role, what are, what are you most excited to, to be working on or most excited to see happen? For me personally, I think the, the greatest uh, excitement that I have is getting around and seeing all the wonderful diversity we have around the state. I do want to okay. get out there. That's, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm here. Yeah. And, and it's why I'm trying to, to network and connect with lots of different contacts from around right. the state. Right. And that's for me personally, just to get to know what are the, what are the needs and uh, you know, how can these resources best be facilitated in local communities. Mm-hmm. But the second part is the initiatives that we have within rural development. We want to promote greater equity, access, and justice for our rural communities. Um, We often think of equity in some primary characteristics such as age and gender and ethnicity, but there's a lot of this diversity and equity aspects that are between rural areas, which are limited resources I indicated before, Mm -hmm. that need some help, need some assistance. Rural communities, regardless of your background, provide... Uh, significant barriers because of that limited resource access. Right. Rural development becomes helping with that equalizer to get resources into those communities yeah. to where there should not be a trade-off because you live in a rural community sure. that you don't benefit from yeah. an enhanced environment. We want, it. we want to create and encourage that diversity. We don't want our rural communities to become like our urban and suburban partners, right, right. you know, neighbors that are there. We, we, we like the characteristics and traits of our rural communities. Mm-hmm but they should be as valuable and as honored and as recognized as those that are in our suburban and, and urban areas as well, yeah. which have their, which have their great attributes and characteristics, Absolutely. but they don't need to be the same. Right. And that's, and so, yeah, that's where equity um, is different than equality. Exactly. Yes. I was going to say the same thing. It's equity. People misunderstand it as equality. It's not the same. It's thing. not the same. It's not and the so, same. It's about fairness. Yeah. It's about what's most appropriate to people's situation. Absolutely. And that's what we're looking about in this equity and just approach. The other parts of it are infrastructure with, with uh, the Biden-Harris administration and President Biden's initiative to really improve and enhance infrastructure throughout our society. Mm-hmm. That's also going out to rural communities. Yeah. So how do we find better ways to work on water, right. uh, wastewater, um, electrical, broadband, yeah. housing, a lot of that, healthcare. All Absolutely. that's a part of the infrastructure conversation yeah. that we need to have. It's really funny. We, I was talking to a guy the other day about... Um, you know, with healthcare, you mentioned that with like telehealth and how that really the biggest concern around that is, you know, access to care and quality of care. And I think those kind of sum up how you get to that, that equity piece is ensuring a certain quality of the services you're providing and having the certain access to those services. Because yeah, that's how you really bring that balance, that equity into the, into the picture. Absolutely. Uh, We also had, you know, we, we just heard from Phil Weiser a little bit ago and it was, I think the most impressive thing I've seen in a long time with a politician, how everyone in that room that spoke thanked him for visiting his er- their areas. I mean, across the state, all the way, you know, northwest up to Rangeley, all the way, you know, Kim and Elizabeth down to Alamosa. He's everywhere. But you see the impact that makes, the trust that breeds with people. And I think that's a- another piece that's kind of been pushed to the side a little bit is that trust piece and how important that is to to someone like, you know, USDA being successful in this. Absolutely, Mike. And I'm glad you recognized you- Attorney General Weiser. Yeah. In, that, in that situation, because it was it was something to see people from different uh, political ideologies, mm-hmm. people from different geographic areas thanking him, as you indicated. Yeah. So I really believe that uh, Attorney General Weiser is a role model. He's Absolutely. a role model to emulate. He's a role model for several agencies, mm-hmm. especially for USDA and rural development. We want to have that presence. We want to build that trust because it, it's, it's not about different ideologies. It's not about no. different political backgrounds. We all live in rural communities. Mm-hmm. We we have 
the, the, the greatest society, the greatest community, the greatest country in the world. Right. And how do we recognize those areas that make it so great? Right. And one of those areas that make it great is our rural areas. And we work together, even though we may have different strategies of how to get to different goals, mm-hmm. we all have similar goals. We want better Absolutely. lives. We want enhanced opportunities for our youth. We want to have sustainability and opportunities for the future. Mm-hmm. We, want, we, want, we want to live quality, quality um, in quality environments. Yeah, absolutely. And again, being in a rural area should not be a trade-off for that. So, so I thank you for bringing that up, especially about Attorney General Weiser. Yeah. We can see it across the spectrum of how we can connect with different people. Right. As long as we build trust, as long as we connect that we're having the same, same, same um, outcomes and goals that we want to achieve. Yeah. And how do we get stronger doing so together, not apart? Right. Well, no, I, well, I look forward to seeing you all across the Action 22 footprint. I know you got a big job ahead of you. It is, and it's a big footprint. It's a big footprint. And, and that's why I need great partners you know, <laughs> like from Action 22 yeah. uh, to, help, to help make that happen. Yeah. And so I'm excited to see how we can work together and how we can partner yeah. in you know, getting people to understand our programs, getting more familiar with programs, getting to know me. So then they feel in that trust, they can reach out to me, ask questions, Absolutely. and I can help navigate them to, to either the resources, the programs, or opportunity that we have. Wonderful. Any parting thoughts? Um, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for the ability to, to network and outreach to so many communities out there in Colorado and especially rural Colorado. We want to have a presence. We want to have a role and rural development. I really feel is the partner to help enhance and make our rural communities better. Wonderful. So thank you, Micah. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome Jessalyn Hampton from Connect for Health Colorado. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us. You're getting to pinch hit a little bit for us on on who is doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So what do you do with Connect for Health Colorado? I am their public affairs manager. Okay. So I work with legislators, regulators, and all of our other stakeholders to uh-huh. make sure they know who we are and what we do. Yeah. And how long have you been with Connect for Health? Just since June. So the new employee oh, smell fun. is slowly starting to fade. <laughs> so you've been doing this for a while. Uh, and Connect for Health has grown quite a bit as well the last little bit what you were telling me. It has. We've added several new employees, including uh, bringing in an in-house call center. Mm-hmm. So we're really proud of our customer service center. We have great response rates and really positive feedback from our customers who are calling in and need help. Yeah. How, uh, how many people do you have in that call center? Oh, at least 50. Oh, geez. Yeah. So that's a little bit of growth for you guys. Absolutely. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit. Obviously, we're here with the, at the uh, Voices of Rural Colorado conference. What have been some of your big takeaways from the, from these meetings? It's been a lot of information. Absolutely. You know, one of my biggest takeaways is that truly um, many parts of the state really do share some of the same struggles. The mm-hmm. solutions may look unique, of course, for every community. Right. But at the end of the day, every corner of Colorado uh, wants better economic opportunity, affordable housing, good food, good opportunities for their children, yeah. a good education, and access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so tell us more about what, what Connect for Health is doing to help with that access. Absolutely. So Connect for Health Colorado is Colorado's official state-based marketplace. So folks who don't get health insurance through their job, Medicaid, or Medicare can come to us to purchase a private plan. Mm-hmm. And depending on factors such as family size and income, they can actually get financial help to pay okay. for those health insurance costs through us. Oh. And how does someone go about actually applying for all that? Absolutely. So you'll want to go to our website, connectforhealthco.com, and we have free expert assistance around the state to help folks enroll in the right health plan for them. 
Uh-huh. So when people go, so when people go online, does that do they start chatting with somebody on like an, uh, an expert online? Is that how that works? We do have a chat function. Okay, uh, I'm a millennial myself. Uh-huh. I know sometimes picking up the phone feels like torture. Right. Uh, so we do have a chat function. You can also email. You can call in. And really, the best route to getting personalized assistance is through what we call our assisters. Okay. So they are health coverage navigators. They are in community based organizations all around the state, including. Pueblo, Alamosa, uh, Trinidad, and we also have health insurance brokers who can really help look at your personal situation mm-hmm. and recommend the best plan for you. Okay. Wow. That's a lot going on. Yeah. So if you come through us, we can get you set up with an assister or a broker. Okay. And so, so for Connect Health Colorado, why is working with you know these rural communities so important to you guys? Absolutely. So part of our strategic goals is improving access to health coverage in rural communities. So the Colorado Health Institute actually puts out a survey every two years Mm -hmm. around healthcare access in the state. And routinely, we see that our rural Coloradans are more likely to be uninsured or underinsured uh, compared to other parts of the state. So we're really looking to expand access. We also know that there are a lot of small business owners in rural Colorado. So they're not necessarily getting that access to health insurance through their employers, maybe as often as in other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that those folks know who we are know that there could be financial help available to them and to get that health coverage so that they can get access to the preventative services they need, to the specialty care they need, to the prescriptions that they need. Well, that's so critical to especially like a rural community, uh, you know, where these healthcare systems have these little offices out there and stuff. Honestly, more money goes into that portion of the economy if people have insurance. Just those little $10 co-pays or $5 co-pays or whatever really bolsters that economy versus people who don't have insurance. They don't go to the doctors. They don't, you know, put that money back into that community that way. Absolutely. It's hugely helpful to our doctors and to our hospitals. Um, That is a really big expense for rural hospitals when they're trying to cover uninsured care. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, and those rural communities, though, even the way those little, uh, those little clinics stuff out or even rural hospitals, even the way they're funded is so different. I mean, the way that hits our bottom line is, is shocking. I think to most people because yeah, they don't get the same kind of coverage that that we do everywhere else in the state. So tell me about something uh, that you guys are excited about that you're working on this coming year. Absolutely. So our normal open enrollment period runs November 1st through January 15th of every year. Okay. However, as everybody saw in the news, there were those devastating fires in Boulder County. So what we've done is we've opened a special enrollment period that we're calling a disaster special enrollment period. So it's open not only to those affected by those devastating wildfires, but to anybody in the state affected by COVID-19. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody not affected by COVID-19. Right. So effectively, if you are um, affected by either of those events, you can actually enroll through us now through March 16th. Oh, wow. And how does someone demonstrate that they've been affected by COVID-19? That's a great question. So for this particular special enrollment period, it's self-attestation. Okay. You won't need to submit a photo of a positive COVID test or or anything like that. Uh, You self-attest. Now, I do want to note that there are other types of special enrollment periods. So let's say, hey, Jesslyn, this doesn't apply to me right now. Uh, But June rolls around and maybe... You switch jobs, you start your own business, Mm -hmm. and you just lost your health insurance. 
that's what's known as a qualifying life event. And when that sort of thing happens that forces you to lose your health insurance, that also triggers an enrollment period. So you can still come to us. And those types of events do require a bit more documentation. Uh, But for this special enrollment period through March 16th, self-attestation, if you're affected by fires or COVID-19, you can still get covered with financial help. As long as you're wearing a mask. There you go. (laughs) Preferably one of our branded CoverCo masks. (laughs) We'll we'll send you one in the mail if you enroll. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Do you have any last thoughts you want to share with us before you go? Please just share far and wide. If you know anybody who's uninsured in your community, whether they're an individual or a small business, we do have options. We do have help. There's more options than ever in the individual market. We only have one county in Colorado with a single insurance option, and that's down from 10 counties last year. Oh, wow. So we're making a lot of progress in terms of choice. So please help spread the word to anyone you know who's a small business owner uh, or otherwise needs health insurance. And tell us one more time the, the, the way to contact you. Absolutely. Our website is connectforhealthco.com. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So we're joined now by Mr. Wes Parham, the man, the legend from Excel Energy. (laughs) Welcome. Uh, Definitely a man, maybe not a legend. I appreciate that, Micah. (laughs) Glad to join you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So tell us um, what your role is with Excel. Uh, Wes Parham, Director of Regional Government Affairs for Excel Energy. Uh, Been with the company about five or six years now. Actually, maybe coming up on seven years uh, now that I think about that. (laughs) Uh, Of course, Excel Energy, though, I like to remind folks that I still proudly report to Public Service Company of Colorado. Yeah. Uh, so I have that going for me. Of course, BSCO has roots going back a long way uh, here serving the state about 100 years. Wow. Um, today serving, goodness, well over 150 communities, uh, infrastructure in 59 of Colorado's 64 counties, serves about one and a half million electric customers, wow. pretty close to that on the gas side, 1.4 million customers. Um, an economic development driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got about 3,800 employees wow. that live and work in our communities across the state. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, you know, spender in local economies. Uh, yeah. About one in $1.3 billion annually wow. in local supply chain spending, uh, mm-hmm. investments in our communities, and uh, the state's largest uh, property taxpayer as well. Oh, really? So, well, that's, yeah, that's, a lot going on there. Yeah, that's quite a, quite a designation. Um, I guess, you know, and I'm, I'm probably like the majority of people. I didn't realize how big of an economic impact you guys really have as far as how much you put back into the communities. Sure. Yeah. And a lot, of course, it, you know, there's, there's the infrastructure side, but the, a big part of our investment uh, is on the community relationship mm-hmm. side. Right. Uh, and certainly, you know, I mentioned the, the breadth of counties that we're in. We have folks that, that live and work in those regions too. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we're good partners on all of the things that we're working on, good neighbors, and that we're right. not only engaged with, but we're a part of those communities. It's yeah. a big, big part of our culture. And you spoke yesterday here at our Voices of Rural Colorado conference about a lot of the change you guys are looking at as far as um, how you're shifting uh, to meet like environmental demands. But you guys are even projecting ahead a lot of what legislation has asked you to do. Sure. Uh, appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, a leader uh, on renewable energy, uh, Excel Energy has been uh, the country's leading utility provider of clean energy for the vast majority of the last 15 years. And uh, as we discussed yesterday, uh, was the first major utility in the country to commit to a goal of zero carbon power generation by 2050. Mm -hmm. And the interim goal 
is to achieve an 80% reduction by 2030. But as we discussed yesterday, Excel Energy is going to push on that. Yeah. And we have a plan in front of regulators now to capture 87% by the end of this decade. So we're getting okay. on out there a ways. Yeah. And, and beyond that, we're talking new technologies. And so we need to approach that uh, eyes wide open. So it's definitely uh, a company priority. It's something that our, our customers and our communities uh, increasingly expect. Certainly right. our policymakers are there. Um, but it's something that, you know, is a growing expectation, too, for our investors and things that are happening uh, within markets and the a broader economy. Mm-hmm. And we just need to make sure that we do this right. And so that's yeah. part of being proactive and partnering with folks in, in rural Colorado to help facilitate that. Yeah, we can all definitely appreciate the impact it makes just to just to show up in some of those places and be seen out there in those communities. Uh, what are some of those new technologies that are that you guys are working with that we should know about and be excited about? Let's uh, any anything and everything that doesn't emit carbon into the atmosphere, I think, should be on on the table. So yeah. we're looking at you know various forms of uh, of energy storage. Mm-hmm. You know, getting into kind of long term storage, you can be more flexible. Right. And provides a lot of different various supports on the on the grid. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of give us some flexibility, reliability, those kind of things. Um, you know, and then even getting into the natural gas space, hydrogen, right. biofuels. There's a lot of stuff happening. There. I think there's a lot of uh, I don't want to say ignorance. Let's say, you know, misinformation. People say, you know, we, we look at renewable energy, we see windmills, we see solar farms. And I think the, the quick question is say, why aren't we already exclusively doing those? Well, to, to be, uh, to put it on the nose, yeah. the wind doesn't always blow. <laughs> That's and, fair. And the sun doesn't always shine. So right. it's, uh, it's, it's not that, that we're battling, uh, right. you know, the, this 100% wind and solar vision. It's just a matter of physics. And so sure. we're, we're moving into a phase here in the next decade or so where uh, we're really focused on that dispatchable generation. So mm-hmm. wind and solar will make up a vast majority of our system right. by 2030, about 80% renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we close the gap to zero carbon? It's going to be dependent on dispatchable technologies that we can rely on okay. uh, affordably uh, to help close that gap when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. That's probably a big piece of it that's, that's underappreciated is that affordability. I mean, just the te- where the technology is at right now, transmitting it, storing it from those renewable sources is probably not the most cost effective at the moment, right? So, my, so I'm really wondering about when we talk about the affordability of it, Obviously, there's a lot of technology that's got to be built out for the storage, the transmission, and that stuff. Um, affordability is critical. Yeah, and Affordability has to be critical, and that's part of the vision. So alongside the environmental leadership uh, today, uh, Excel is proud to boast both uh, a 99.9% electric reliability mm-hmm. and average bills at home 30 to 35% below the national average. Yeah. If we can keep uh, maintaining clean energy, reliable and affordable. We've got a really good story to tell right. there. I mean, so Excel, obviously, like I said, they're, they're a leader in just the, the distribution, the all the technology leading the way in the environmentally sustainable aspects of it. Why is why has the rural parts of Colorado been such an important focus for you guys? It's a fantastic question. And the partnership with rural Colorado is critical. Yeah. It's absolutely critical uh, because it's, it's facilitating much of the renewable energy development. I think I saw, Micah, a... Uh, a study that was released by Action 22 and Pro 15 earlier this summer. Yeah. This last summer. We're at the right. turn of the year here. <laughs> that estimated uh, that on the Eastern Plains alone, over the last several decades, renewable energy accounted for over $10 billion 
of new investment okay. in that region. And that's all, all renewable energy projects, not just Excel Energies. But right. that's, an ex, that's a significant driver yeah. of local property taxes mm-hmm. uh, to help fund schools and libraries and roads and bridges, police fire stations, those kind of things. Critical services to the community, right. um, but also benefits a lot of those, uh, those landowners and has implications there, too. But it's important that we're good stewards of those projects right. and good neighbors yeah. uh, because we're, we're here for the long haul and we want to be a partner uh, in those areas. And so it's something that we work really hard on the front end of those, those projects to make sure that, that, that we're approaching them responsibly. I, and I think, I mean, there's an appreciable benefit and value to, to you know, going to renewable energy, like you said, just the sheer investment that goes into that to these um, rural communities. What about... I know there's a concern with the job loss from the coal plants, the, the coal generators. How are you guys addressing that? I'll put this one on the nose too. Yeah. Uh, coal plant closures are really hard. Sure. They're hard for me personally. They're hard for our team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're hard for uh, our folks that live and work in those regions. These right. are our communities mm-hmm. and the folks that, uh, that, that work in these facilities are my colleagues too at the end of the day. And so you know, I, I'm fortunate, though, that, that we work for a company that is willing to sit down and be very transparent on the front end once we know that accelerated closure right. uh, is, you know, is, is it's happening in, in, the, uh, in the equation. Yeah. Uh, we want to sit down with community leaders. We want to sit down with the workforce and be just very transparent on what these transition windows look like. Make sure it's something that's not going to happen overnight and there's no right. surprises. We want to work with community leaders and industry and others in our industry to identify areas where uh, we can replace generation where it makes sense. That's yeah. new capital investment in those regions to help mitigate and offset property tax revenue and workforce opportunities. We want to work with large employers in those regions mm-hmm. to identify projects to help them do the same right. and to drive economic development and maintain economic development and activity in those regions. But also recognizing, Micah, that not every one community looks the same. Wonderful. So up in northwest Colorado, for instance, up in Route County near Hayden Station, mm-hmm. you know, the wind and solar high concentrations like you see out on the eastern plains, maybe they don't make sense on our systems up there, but right. we're working with community leaders to evaluate a redevelopment plan mm-hmm. to explore some of the newer technologies yeah. that both help Excel Energy and the state achieve its carbon reduction goals, right. but that provide long-term sustainable investment in those communities and workforce development opportunities. Yeah. That's collaboration that you don't get unless you're willing to sit down and be very transparent right. with those community leaders and partner on what comes next. Yeah, and you see that with, with some of the partners that we have with Action 22, you see how far that transparency goes, how far that communication piece goes, how far it goes to, to be out and just be present in those communities. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested in the, that workforce development piece too because, I mean, I'm sure a lot of those jobs, set, a lot of those skill sets are probably transferable regardless of the type of power you're generating. Yeah, it? It, it, it is. And it, or easy, I, well, easy to it, translate it to, to a new sure, space. Sure. It, yeah. uh, it, it depends on the type of facility, sure. right? And that, yeah. all, that all comes in, into consideration. One of the projects that we're evaluating up in Route County, and again, it's still in the evaluation stage, mm-hmm. is a, uh, a biomass uh, facility, for instance, where... Uh, you can burn trees to generate electricity from a, an environmental standpoint. Yeah. Uh, rotting trees in the forest 
Oh, so that probably leads to a lot Met- of fire. Methane, right. That probably leads to a lot of fire mitigation that's benefits right. as well. Exactly. So there, there's there's the methane that's coming from the the rotting wood. But right, uh, wildfires are always a risk in yeah. Colorado, and so are there some opportunities there where we can partner to help mitigate risk in some of those areas and generate electricity right. uh, in a, in a uh, carbon net neutral way, yeah. but also provide some of those transferable skills for uh, my colleagues that are working uh, in uh, you know, the coal facility up there now. And again, those are all in evaluation stages now, but it's things that, that we think about on a nearly daily basis as we right. develop this project. I'm going to ask you about what you're most excited about next, but I, you know, I, I love talking to businesses. I love talking to people who like to think outside the box and find creative solutions. Yeah, because I mean that's really where we're at. A lot of the stuff, some of the old stuff works. A lot of it doesn't, and mm-hmm. a lot of these changes are going so much faster than we're able to yeah. to keep up with. Yeah, and pivot on. So, like I was saying, as far as this coming year, what we're looking forward to, what's something that that you're excited about, maybe personally, and what the Excel's working on that we can help you with and be excited about with you. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I'll pivot on something that you just mentioned there: the pace of the the industry. I think. Uh, I'm not sure this is an exaggeration. I think it's changed more in the last decade than maybe the, you I know, think the, that's the century leading up to it. And it's all driven by technology. Uh-huh. And innovation is driving technology. We see that on the power generation side. And so then you ask what I'm excited about and what comes next. Innovation is also driving things on the natural gas side of our business. Okay. Uh, of course, Excel Energy serves end-use gas service to our customers and and a common topic that's talked about right now is um you know this nexus uh between electrification and natural gas yeah. in homes and businesses and I think a question was asked yesterday on that topic and uh we surveyed our, our customers on this topic and a vast majority of them not even a vast majority it's cut and dry they want clean energy sure yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they we want can, clean we can energy. Put a blanket on that. Uh, we we <laughs> checked it. Yeah, of course. They want clean energy. Um, but they also, you know, they like cooking with their gas range stoves. Yeah. Uh, they, they like their gas fireplaces. Right. Uh, they recognize that gas-fired uh, furnaces uh, heat their homes sure. in, in the wintertime. And they don't want to pay more to swap out all of their electric appliances. And right. you could probably put me in that category, I'd, my situation I'd, I'd, I'd at, at home. I'd be there too. <laughs> uh, and so Excel Energy has a leading vision on the natural gas side to reduce c- greenhouse gas emissions associated with natural gas delivery mm-hmm. to homes and businesses. And as we talked about yesterday, um, that starts by sending uh, signals to those upstream producers that we purchase from mm-hmm. to... Uh, secure cleaner natural gas right. on the front end. And so by 2030, Excel Energy has committed to purchasing only certified natural gas, which is yeah. verifiably cleaner natural gas. Yeah, before you even start processing it, sending that, it. That's right. So then when it comes into our, our system, the distribution system, um, we, we know that we have a, a clean product, mm-hmm. but we also need to make sure that we have modern pipelines, and we're taking care of business on our system to reduce the risk of methane leaks there, which today is very, very small. I think less than 1% yeah. of the total. And in the home, helping our customers simply be more efficient with their energy usage, right. looking at electrification yeah. of appliances in areas where it does reduce emissions and it's cost-effective for that customer and cost-effective for other customers too. And here's the exciting piece too, okay. right? Looking at other 
uh, forms of technologies that are happening in this space. I mentioned hydrogen earlier, uh-huh. hydrogen blends. There's, it's a, a very flexible fuel that you can do a lot of things sure. with biofuels, green methane, renewable gas, uh, and all of that has partnership development opportunities in yeah. rural Colorado too. So I'm really excited to see where that's going to be heading uh, here over the next several decades. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Wes, for being with yeah. us. Thanks, Mike. I, I think we could go on about this for quite a while. It's pretty, pretty cool stuff. But down the street, let me know. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. All right. Hi, this is Brian with Making Action Happen. Um, recently, we hosted Voices of Rural Colorado and myself and my family end up testing positive for COVID. So I had to sit that one out. And also some of our attendees did, one of which is Carly West with Black Hills Energy. So she's kind of in the same boat as me. We're doing this remotely from our houses. So Carly, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us who you work for and what you do? Hi, thanks so much, Brian. I'm Carly West. I'm with Black Hills Energy. I manage our Colorado Government Affairs Program, and I've been with the company for about seven years. Um, Before starting in Government Affairs about three months ago, I did um, community affairs on our natural gas side. So got to travel all over our natural gas service territory throughout the state. And I'm excited to be working on our electric issues as well now. Awesome. Well, again, we appreciate Black Hills Energy was a sponsor of Voices of Rural Colorado, which last year it was all remote. And we're going through the COVID madness right now. And it seems to be getting better as we both have it in our house. Um, and what Voices does is it, it brings rural Colorado to Denver to interact with legislators, decision makers, utility companies, everything. Now, Black Hills Energy, you have a huge footprint in rural Colorado, correct? Absolutely. So Black Hills Energy is a natural gas and electric utility provider here in Colorado. Um, Our electric side serves 24 communities and our natural gas business serves 105 communities throughout the state. And like you said, our footprint is very rural, Um, especially on our gas side. We serve um, the entire eastern part of the state, essentially. We have lots of western Colorado. Um, We cover just about every part of the state or touch on about every part of the state except for right in the heart of the Denver metro area. So our roots are absolutely rural. So in Colorado, uh, natural gas is very important to specifically rural Colorado. Um, I know Black Hills Energy, you said your footprint natural gas wise is huge. So let's talk a little bit about uh, natural gas, its pricing, services, et cetera. Sure. So natural gas is an important part of our business, both both for our electric and our gas customers. Obviously, on um, the gas side, we are distributing natural gas for customers' direct use for heating their homes and warming their water and cooking food. But on the electric side, it's also an important piece as well. Um, The Pueblo Airport Generating Station, or PAGS, provides a lot of our energy, and that's natural gas generation because our electric side doesn't have any coal on our system. So from both angles, natural gas plays a huge part in our ability to deliver energy to our customers and deliver the energy that they need to run their lives. Um, so on that front, natural gas pricing, we know is really important to our customers because that shows up in their bills. And we've seen a lot of volatility on the natural gas side in terms of pricing recently. So um, for us, we want to make sure that our customers know about that, but more importantly, they know about all the ways that they can manage their bills and save energy and save money and weather through some unpredictability in the pricing. 
Yeah. And it's important to add that, you know, natural gas isn't just heat. It's actually electricity because, you know, in, in Pueblo where I'm at, um, you, you have electric and you have your natural gas for your heating bill. But most people don't realize that natural gas, I mean, we do because we've worked in this forever. So we, we get it. But the, the average person, I don't think they realize that natural gas actually generates electricity too. It's not just for a gas line into your home for your stove or your water heater or your, your furnace, right? Absolutely. And more and more, that's becoming more of the mix. So as Black Hills has already moved away from coal on our Colorado electric system and other utilities are doing the same, natural gas becomes an even more important part of that mix because um, you're adding electric generation from it that you're replacing old coal generation with. And also it provides great backup for your intermittent sources. So your renewable energy, making sure that when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, that we still have an electricity to serve our customers and our electric generation that comes from natural gas is a key component of that. Going forward in Colorado, how do you see Black Hills changing or adapting to upcoming challenges such as the pricing? What, what's in the future, near-term future for Black Hills Energy right now? So we're obviously working with our regulators to um, determine the best ways to manage through some of those. And in the meantime, we're spending a lot of time communicating with our customers to make sure they know what to expect and that we're giving them all the tools um, that they need to uh, manage their uh, energy usage and save money as they do so. Awesome. So that we're doing on that end, um, we offer a lot of rebates in terms of your appliances. So if you are in need of a more efficient water heater or heater in your home or um, really almost any appliance in your home. We offer a lot of great rebates to help get new energy efficient equipment into homes. We also have um, a lot of tips on our website, uh, things like ways you can save energy by turning your water heater down a couple of notches by um, when you're cooking something in your stove, not opening the door, utilizing that light as tempting as it is to open the door. Just a lot of little changes that can be done that help manage your energy load especially when it comes to those cold Colorado days. Um, we offer programs that customers can do an in-home evaluation, determine areas where they may be losing um, heat during the winter, and really um, providing things like tips around making sure that caulking around your window is secure or doing a test on your door to find out if you're letting cold air in and letting the heat out through your door. So a lot of ways to just make the home a little bit more energy efficient and all those methods add up to savings. And if somebody was interested in exploring these options or like myself, I think I'm going to have to get a new hot water heater soon. Um, where can I find out information about that program? How do I go about talking to somebody for this help? Sure. On our website, blackhillsenergy.com, we have clicks um, or easy links to get to our energy efficiency programs and customer assistance. So you can find details on energy efficiency programs. You can find details on those rebates. Um, we can get you contact information through that link to connect with one of our representatives who can share additional information and um, look forward to getting information out. We also have two really great energy efficiency coordinators. Um, Amy Fiala does our gas side. Patty Olnick does our electric side. And the two of them are great partners in the community looking for opportunities to share information. So um, if there is an opportunity to provide additional information or provide detail on those rebates, they are always happy 
to get that information into our customers and our community's hands. Awesome. And one thing that I like to do on our show is kind of talk about the positives, right? Um, if anybody watches the news right now, everything's end of the world, doom and gloom. You know, it's not fun. So whenever I have a guest on, I ask them about some of the positives that they're doing. But I know for a fact, just with Black Hills Energy and where I live in Pueblo, Colorado, um, Black Hills does a lot giving back to the community. And we really appreciate it there. And, and if you have something to say about that, um, it would be great because I think every event that I attend in Pueblo, Black Hills is a sponsor. And that's everything from trunk or treat to chamber of commerce breakfast to just charity stuff. So what's, uh, I understand you guys do that and I know why, but just tell us a little bit about that. Some of that public outreach that you do. Sure. Like you said, we are very ingrained in the communities that we serve and truly our community's success is our success. They are so intertwined and we are part of these communities. Our employees live and work and go to school in the communities that we serve. And it it's not somebody else's community. It's our own community. So the success is really important to us. And that's why we do engage so closely and make sure that we are um, tied into what's happening in a community and that we're supporting the efforts to move forward. And that's one of the reasons we love being part of um, rural um, day at the Capitol. We are so disappointed to be missing the event this year, but uh you know, we are so pleased that we can support the Royal Rural Voices at the Capitol, um, Action 22, Pro 15, Club 20. These organizations are so key to success in our communities, and we just really relish the opportunity to be engaged with them and show our support and find out what we can do to continue our mission of improving our communities' lives with energy. So um, we are so pleased to be part of it. And and one final question for you. Um, if somebody is looking for a career at Black Hills Energy, where can they apply or where can they look for job openings? Oh, great question. I would say also on our website, uh, blackhillsenergy.com, there is a link to careers at Black Hills Energy. Um, I can say I've been with the company for seven years now. It is an excellent place to work. Um, we are always looking for great people. And so I would encourage anyone looking for a career in energy to check us out and let us know if you have any questions. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show. And we appreciate what you did for rural, uh, Voices of Rural Colorado. Um, you've been a member of Action 22 uh, for years and Pro 15 and Club 20, I believe. And we appreciate your membership. And if anybody's interested in joining Action 22 or any of the organizations, you can find us at action22.org, pro15.org, or club20.org. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And again, thanks for your sponsorship and helping us put this thing together. It's a great way for our membership to connect with the legislators and decision makers in Denver. And I think we saw this year just by the, the response and the attendance that this is needed. And it does make a difference. And a lot of times these conversations won't happen when you live 150 miles away. But when you get up there in front of the people in Denver, as we call it the big city from down here, you know, you, you can actually have these conversations and, and open these routes to communication to better Colorado and better rural Colorado. So we appreciate what you're doing and thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.